Welcome to Who Wrote That Up For You, a daily podcast that shines a light on the American justice system and its role in empowering the powerful to take from you. The justice system is the only branch of your government where an individual, rather than the collective, can make the system act for you. It puts power in the individual's hands, but it's broken and being used against you at a time when you need it most. Welcome to Who Wrote That Up For You. I'm Sonia Ebron, a co-founder at Courtroom 5. And I'm Deborah Sloan, the other co-founder at Courtroom 5. Fantastic show lined up for you today. In a few moments, we are bringing back uh, to the show Ken Johnson, a mediator we spoke with a few weeks ago uh, on some general uh, mechanics of the mediation process and helping people settle their cases out of court. Uh, But with school starting up uh, again, we wanted to bring him back to talk specifically about his expertise in juvenile justice uh, and in restorative justice principles. And so we'll talk with him a good bit about uh, helping kids avoid the school to prison pipeline and some other very difficult issues that our kids are are having to deal with. Before we get there, Deborah, uh, what is on your mind today? Well, uh, multiple states are uh, basically dealing with the issue of uh, lawsuit funding, where um, basically companies or organizations will come in and pay for a law a lawsuit. For example, if uh, someone is suing, uh, let's say in a personal injury case, that person uh, wants to go on contingency, which means that they that they want to um, basically not pay anything until they win. A company would come in, a third party uh, financing company would come in and uh, might uh, uh, fund that lawsuit. And the problem with that is that uh, there's no uh, transparency. There um, there are a lot of uh, amazing uh, bills that, uh, that, that people are getting because or paying more money out, of course. It's almost like a, um, <laughs> I hate to say it, but a VC, it's almost like a, um, they have to be rewarded for the money that they've, that they've put out. And so it's, it's, it's a sad system. And uh, Louisiana governor just um, used his executive power to veto a Senate bill that would have just provided some litigation financing transparency. He, ve- he vetoed it. And, and now, you know, basically th- there's not really a state that's really dealing with that. And uh, there are ba- basically big businesses now uh, really heavy in uh, litigation, in particularly uh, personal injury. And, and it kind of has, a, I think it's a conflict of interest with uh, the, the outcome of a case. Or not necessarily the outcome, but the decisions, the strategic decisions that you would make uh, in a lawsuit, like whether to uh, mediate, whether to settle or whether to go to trial. And so I think that's a, a big uh, due process issue, really. 
That's really interesting. I had not heard of that uh, story. You know, there's such uh, concern, I know, in the justice tech space, within our space, um, about having undue influence on -hmm. law firms, right? Uh, As we try to help our customers get the legal services they so desperately need uh, in some innovative ways, we get a little bit of pushback from regulators that we, you know, might be influencing the delivery of legal services. And it seems to me that certainly big finance companies um, paying for litigation <laughs> might have um, uh, even even more impact than any of us could have and yet they are they're being protected here by state officials so I'm uh, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about that thanks for bringing that to our attention at courtroom five we believe the courts belong to the people in particular to the people who use them. Uh, And we the people are coming to claim our courts. So if you are in court without a lawyer uh, or you need uh, to sue someone and can't find a lawyer to represent you, get yourself over to courtroom5.com. Give us a try and we hope to provide some relief for you there. At this time, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Ken Johnson, uh, mediator, uh, but also restorative justice uh, facilitator and uh, and mediator. Ken, thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's great to be here, and I, I'm glad you talked about that topic, Deborah, because I was I was um, involved in a case where they called it insurance, and I had to, I realized that after we won the case, I had to pay that insurance I had no say so in. So, yes, uh, th- this is a big uh, issue that no one is talking about. So, thank you for bringing that up. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Ken, uh, let's jump right into it because we, we've got a lot to talk about here. As I mentioned, kids are going back to school now uh, across the country, and you know, you have worked for a long time on some juvenile justice issues, and certainly re- uh, restorative justice needs to be a larger part uh, of that. Let's take those two pieces separately. What is uh, restorative justice, and what do you do uh, to facilitate that? Okay, so restorative justice as a whole, is a, a type of dealing with an infraction where you, you have three parties, you have the offender, you have the victim, and then you have what we call community of care. And so it goes back to a older system of justice. When I'm talking about older, I'm talking about thousands of years back to antiquity, what our ancestors considered justice, that the community would deal with the, the, the offender, they would deal with the victim, and try to come up with a solution that you could reach atonement for your actions if you're an offender, and then be brought back into the community without the, all the ostracizing that you see today, all the stigmas, you know, even even after you served your time, you really you don't have certain rights anymore. All these issues that will continue to impede your life, maybe for a five minute indiscretion where maybe you got a little bit too angry or maybe you just didn't have an attorney um, and you, you took a deal that maybe you shouldn't have took. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate you referencing uh, those ancient cultures um, that practice restorative justice. Can you talk about a, a bit more about how you learned uh, about some of these practices? Well, 
After I got my certification as a mediator, one of the trainers, she was a restorative justice facilitator, and she's like, I think you do really well at this. And so after a period of time, I found somebody that was doing restorative justice near where I live at the University of West Florida, and that was Dr. Cheryl Swanson. Uh, and she she was the president of several uh, conflict resolution groups. She was a uh, basically a criminal justice professor, and then she had a uh, she had co-founded an honor dorm at Holman Prison in Atmore, Alabama. Holman Prison, if you don't know that what it is, it's a maximum security death house. And so, under her tutelage, I I started learning about restorative justice and. So I actually went to Holman and I, I dealt with some of the guys and these, it's no joke there. Uh, it, it's, it's rough. And uh, it was interesting that you had this place full of murderers and thieves and everything else. And yet they only needed a guard half the time, if that. And it was, it was really neat how they was able to turn things away uh, or turn things around. But one of the things that I focused on, all the research I looked at said that you get more bang for your buck the younger the offender is. And I had worked for a period of time in the school system. And at the time, I was working as a deputy clerk. Um, so I was working in the court system. And it was troubling to me to see my students or former students come to me and they're now on the wrong side of the law. And I looked at their, you know, I, I had access to some of their case files and stuff. And I'd look, I'm like, this isn't right. They're being charged with stuff no adult would ever be charged with. They're being treated differently. There's a different set of laws and treatments and protocols for children than there is adults. And that's wrong. And so that really fueled me to investigate restorative justice and then from there, Dr. Swanson, even though we would have some heated discussions, <laughs> uh, she, she urged me that you have a passion for juveniles. You've definitely done your research. She would challenge me. She knew where all my buttons were. She would put press them buttons to just fuel me along, which that's what a really great mentor does sometimes. And with that, uh, basically that training, I got my my bachelor's degree. And then after I got my bachelor's, my master's, I started writing books on restorative justice, doing talks, all that kind of stuff. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Ken. And so that's a great segue uh, into talking about some of the juvenile justice issues that you've explored and, and talked and written about. Um, tell me what, you know, what is the, the, the primary problem with juvenile justice? here? You highlighted one of them, which is that these kids are being treated in many instances uh, more harshly by the criminal justice system uh, than, than adults might be under similar circumstances. But what's the, what's the issue and what's gotten you involved uh, as an advocate for juvenile justice? Well, I call it America's war on youth. We've, we've always really had a war on youth uh, and no one has addressed it. And so you think about like if if you ever go to Savannah, Georgia, and you do a tour, uh, some of these houses 
if you got a really good tour guide, they'll talk about how, you know, you had the, the workers um, that would be below the house and that they'd be doing all the work. And the children of the master of the house would also be down below. And they were not to be seen at all unless they was having some type of big party or something. And then they would clean them up and then they were not the same thing. They was only supposed to be in certain areas and then they was brought below. And so we, we've always had this culture in America where children were not considered to be basically young humans. Uh, they, they were always seen as inferior. And it wasn't until the 1800s we actually had some juvenile justice laws, but shortly thereafter, it w- we, we kind of abandoned that. And so now we've, we've got this idea that we might as well treat them as adults. And so a lot of them are, are they, even though that there's laws saying that they can be treated as juvenile offenders, we actually will charge them for felony and misdemeanor charges, what they call lesser minor offenses. So basically overcharging them on offenses that no adult would ever be charged for. Uh, so, you know, one of the cases that I dealt with um, in San Rose County, where I live, uh, a student had drawn a picture and got charged with felony bomb threat charges for drawing a picture. There's um, several cases where a child took a French fry and went bang, bang, and was charged on felony firearms charges. Uh, so you you had a lot of these cases. I mean, it was so stupid that the, the Florida legislators had to initiate a law that they called the Pop-Tart Amendment because of a child in another state had chewed a Pop-Tart and he was trying to make a mountain and he was evidently a bad sculptor or bad chewer. And he said, looks more like a gun than a mountain. And he went bang, bang and got in trouble. And so the legislator said, well, we're we're not going to have this anything. But they stopped short of saying that you couldn't arrest the child. And so now, like in the state of Florida and a lot of states, you have uh, laws on the book saying that you've got to have a dedicated law enforcement officer at every single school. If you look at the arrest reports from these these law enforcement officers, a, a vast majority of the time, it's just because somebody asked them to arrest the child. And a lot of these arrests are coming right before standardized testing. And the reason for that is if a child is suspended, expelled, or arrested before the standardized testing, their test scores do not count. And so, therefore, if the child is out of the school system for those reasons and they're a poor-performing child, you can get them out then that funding that the school would get is kind of hedging your bets on that. And I I think that should be criminal. Um, And so there's a lot of issues at play here, but a lot of it's just the fact that we're not, we're not treating children with the care and respect. We do not see them as our greatest resource. We can't fathom the idea that we're setting up the next generation and that if we don't put everything we can and give them the best, we're never going to have the best in the future. And we, we now have a thing now called million-dollar blocks 
where uh, you have city blocks where if you calculate all the loss due to imprisonment, it equates to a million dollars of loss and in taxes and all these other things. And it's because the vast majority, it's like 80, 90 something percent of the people in prison started out as juvenile offenders and then they had to be transferred to adult prison to finish out their their sentence. It's extraordinary, Ken. I almost don't know where to start with this. I mean, obviously we could spend hours waiting through this this mess. And it's 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 striking to me that it all stems from this really punitive attitude we have towards young people. That is just so destructive to any culture, it seems to me. You, you know, we're eating our young, uh, if you will, destroying our, our greatest asset here. You pointed, though, uh, if I can just take one string of your, your comment there, you pointed to um, the, the desire to arrest uh, certain young people in the school system. So maybe as a way of improving the funding for the school or, you know, improving test scores overall. Uh, and so forth. That is, it seems to me, one factor in the school to prison pipeline, particularly if I can connect another piece of your commentary, most of the people, the vast majority of people in uh, prison uh, started as juveniles, right? You know, and so we have this very strong self-reinforcing, it seems to me, um, school to prison pipeline. What advice could you give uh, to parents whose children are at risk uh, of of this this machine to keep these kids from from getting involved. Well, it's one of those things that I wish I had parents that I could talk to, because it it is the children that are in the most amount of need and the most amount of neglect. That those are the ones that they may not have the parents, they may not have the resources, and so. It comes to the point, are you going to have a worldview that America's had now for a while that we're all individuals? Are you going to take a worldview that we're a community? And that's very hard. For instance, where I live, the average, now I tell people I'm a unicorn. I'm a seventh generation native of Florida. That's rare. Where I live, the average person doesn't stay in our community for any more than two years, if that. All right. So you, you think about it. America is very nomadic in a lot of places. So there is a sense of community and we've got to somehow figure out a way to establish some sort of community basis. Restorative justice. We have a term we call community care and I can talk about that later, but that's a way to fight it. But these children, they're are in neglect. There's no one to advocate for them. And it, it's only made worse by people like John DiUlio Jr. He's a professor and author. He 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 was actually on the cover of Time magazine and he came up with a bunch of other uh professors and authors with this idea of a super predator myth. Um it, of course it wasn't called the myth and then after a while it was found to be a myth and then uh George W. Bush he hired him on uh to deal with the uh the church uh, initiatives they had going on. And basically John DiUlio's uh, job was to kind of kind of curtail the damage he caused by the super predator myth 
and he's only went up in status. He is, he's never been arrested. He's never suffered any type of public ostracization. He's never been blackballed in academia. He's been heralded as this great person. And he has really been the one that has fueled a lot of the basis people use for this punitive system. And it's all a fraud. It's all lies. And he is he's resulted millions of lives damaged just this one man and no one's ever said anything or done anything to him about it. You know, certainly it's when some of these researchers or, you know, academics coin their phrases, they don't do it alone. Uh, there's often tons of people who pick up on that and put it into the culture. And I remember the crime bill in the 90s, uh, the super predator uh, that I learned about from from some uh, politicians and even people in uh, in the communities largely affected by this picked up on those same myths and uh, caused a lot of damage. So certainly uh, understand where you're coming from there. If we could, let's talk about what happens to these kids then. If they are arrested and placed into the juvenile justice um, system, I know there in Florida, we've got some pretty horrible, uh, in my opinion, uh, juvenile justice facilities that are in many, many instances worse than, than what you might find for adults. Can you talk about the experience of some of these children and the maybe difficulties of caring for them as a community? It, it varies drastically from where the child is. So I have been in some school systems where the uh, child goes basically to a, a school that's nothing more than a penitentiary. And so they walk in, their only contact that they have with humans is getting frisked as they go in. And they're, they're set at a computer and they can't, they can't interact with anybody. It's like a prison. Uh, I've dealt with those schools. Uh, and then if you go into the, the, the actual juvenile justice system where they actually are arrested, like in, in the state of Florida, we have a law uh, 985.155 that says that if they're a first-time offender, they, they have the right to seek restorative justice. The problem with that is the legislators put all that into the hands of the state attorney's office. Well, state attorney's office, all they care about is convictions. They don't care about keeping people out of jail, so they're not going to do that. So that law needs to be rewritten, but I know of no representative, no state senator that will even look at that being changed. Uh, and so. In some areas of Florida, what happens is that the child will go to a mental health facility and then they're evaluated. And a lot of times they will try to get them at, uh, seen as being suicidal. They try to trick the children, say that they're suicidal, anything of that nature. The reason why is if you ever say that you're suicidal um, or you've ever had suicidal thoughts, then that will stop you from being able to have a handgun. It'll stop you from being able to get into service. Uh, then later on when you try to, or if, if you ever get in trouble, they can use that against you for sentence enhancements, things of that nature. So that's one of the things. So they, they'll take the children, have them go through a mental health facility, then after they go through the mental health facility, then they go to a work for farm. 
that the sheriff has, and basically it's forced labor, and that's considered to be a diversionary program. If they're lucky enough that they go to a, a juvenile justice facility only for the juvenile charges and not for adult charges, then they may or may not make it out without having to go to federal, or not federal, but uh, adult prison. Because a lot of times these sentences are so long, it exceeds their age. And so uh, you can only be in a juvenile system until you're an adult, and then you got to go to adult prison. So that's where a lot of these children end up, is that the sentence is so long, they end up going to adult prison. The guards for these juvenile systems they're immune from any type of child neglect or child endangerment laws. And so uh, we can talk about the White House boys or a number of these facilities, but there's been a number of children that have died. They're, they're um, right now exhuming several unmarked graves at one, at one site right now where children have been buried. And no one cared about it. And, and it, it, it's horrid. And, you know, the I had a lot of people that when I was talking about this, that people very close to me, they thought that I was lying because they thought children were insulated from the law. And, I'm, you know, I tell them, hey, look, you can take a French fry and go bang, bang as a child. And all of a sudden you have felony uh, firearms charges and that goes on your permanent record. And they say, oh, no, children are supposed to be protected and they don't the, you know, their the any crimes that they do when they're a child is not privy to later on when they're adult and having a background check. You said it's not the case, and uh, people don't understand that. You're, you're referring to the facility in Mariana, uh, Florida, if I recall, the White House boys. Can you can you share with our audience the the background there? It was officially called the Dozier School for Boys, and. Uh, if you look at the historical stuff, it seemed like a wonderful place. Uh, they they was teaching the boys agriculture and raising cattle and all that stuff. And it was it, it was whitewashed is what it was. Let's be honest. The truth of the matter is it was a hellish place for these boys. And there was a white shack that was referred to as the White House. And if you ever went to the White House, you may or may not make it out alive. And so uh, it seemed that boys that were uh, either African-American or some other minority, that they were more worsely, they were worsely treated than their Caucasian uh, friends that were also incarcerated, but all suffered it. And it was so bad that uh, a lot of them have stories where they were beaten so bad that their underwear uh, would be beaten into their flesh and they would have to pick the fibers of the underwear out of their flesh so that it was no longer skin. It was just flesh where they was beaten so bad. A lot of them were raped by the guards. We have had a lot of unmarked graves that they had talked about because people didn't believe them. And when they finally they got enough people to believe them that some of the universities, the state came in, they started digging and finding all these unmarked graves. And eventually it was shut down, thankfully. That's extraordinary. Uh, and unfortunately not unique. 
in the nation's history. You know, there's uh, uh, similar stories for residential schools for Native children uh, as well, or parallels there. That's so unfortunate. And again, I, I can't escape the comment you made at the outset about the way we treat our children uh, as a culture here, and that that uh, just drives, you know, the school to prison pipeline, the educational experience for them uh, in a larger sense. Can where can, is there any bright light as you look forward, you know, as you see some changes, hopefully, in the educational system and the juvenile justice uh, system? Is there any hope for uh, for improvement or progress? I saw a glimmer of hope and then it was quickly dashed. So I was teaching a lot of teachers. I, I spoke at the fifth um fifth annual National Restorative Justice Conference. And it was a, I mean, when I say packed room, they were out in the hallways of teachers from all over America. And we were talking about this issue. Then I had, I was doing all kind of meetings. And I, I mean, you know, I, I, I charged to speak, I, you know, I, I'm public speaker, so I, I have a fee and I'm not cheap. And so I would do free speakings you know, to I, I do all this online stuff so that I wouldn't have to travel and minimize my costs just so that the schools, the, the, the um, you know, the teachers, the parents, that they could get involved. And then what I noticed shortly thereafter is that the schools started coming up with their own little programs and they, they were hijacking the term restorative justice. And I likened it to imagine the school having a two-hour course, and if you took it, you would become the school doctor. And let's say that uh, in that course, they said orange juice or apple juice and toast is the remedy. So Johnny falls on the playground, breaks his arm, goes to the school doctor and is given apple juice and toast and sent back to class. The doctors would never allow this. The legislator would never allow this. But this is what happened with restorative justice. And so I had a number of teachers that I was training that they were telling me people that never heard about restorative justice, never heard about any of the concepts they was trying to institute. All of a sudden, the next year they would come in. They took a two-hour course, was certified by the district, and they're doing things that have nothing to do with restorative justice. It's called that. Only people that go through that certification program and there are certified teachers or certified librarians, they, they have all these little weird things that make it hard for the average teacher to get in there. Only those people could be certified for restorative justice. And I, I looked at a lot of this stuff and none of it was helping the children at all. And when I... I would talk to the uh, the the churches and various church groups. You know, a lot of them seem to share no interest in it because children they can't you know they can't tithe, and uh, so it it really made it really hard. Uh, pretty much trying to get into the school systems is near impossible now because a lot of them have their own. And I'll say fake with quotation marks, but it is fake restorative justice programs. Um, one, I, all they did was took students out and they they just had them marching and, and all that for protesting, doing protest movements. I'm like, 
Are they protesting because of education? They're protesting, trying to uh, keep children, you know, out of prisons. They like, no, they're, they're, it has nothing to do with any of that stuff. I'm like, so basically what's the difference in that and Dell computers using Chinese prisoners to make their, their computers? Our job is to educate children. You're, you're using restorative justice or that name as a way for you to push an agenda, get them where they're not being educated, and you're doing nothing in your role that's supposed to help them to to actually safeguard them, uh, safeguard other students, protect them, raise them up. Uh, and so we, we've got to find some way at the community level to reassert ourselves and say, hey, look, this is not what we want. I think that's absolutely right, Ken. I really appreciate your, your care and concern, and I'm hoping to see your voice uh, elevated there and happy to, uh, to, to participate in that. Uh, for folks that want to reach out to you, I know they can do so at KenJohnsonMediation at gmail.com, sharing that with our users on the screen now. Uh, for people interested in restorative justice in particular and perhaps bringing that into their school system or, uh, you know, finding some other ways to, uh, to, to, to stop the school to prison pipeline. Uh, is this also the best place to reach you and what can they expect when they do? Yes. Well, a lot of it's going to be a lot of questions. I mean, that's what I do in my job, either restorative justice or mediation. It's always questions. I need to know what it, what are the issues that you're facing? What is the system? You know, what are the rules? What, what are we going to be walking into if we walk into this? And then it's, what, what are you going to be able to do? What are your resources? Where, where is the community at? and try to get some type of game plan so that you can take the initiative. Um, I can provide education. I can provide training. I can provide expertise, but, you know, I'm only one person. And so it, it you know, what I'm going to have to find out where that community is so that we can make those inroads. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ken, thank you so much again for uh, joining us here on Who Wrote That Up For You. We'll see you again soon and best of luck. It's always a pleasure, guys. My goodness, there's so much work to be done uh, on justice issues. I I am um, often discouraged by uh, just the status of justice in our in our society. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly there's good reason for that. But then we we do see people who uh, have the, the the requisite care and concern and and capability uh, to help address some of these issues. So um, I absolutely wish uh, more success for Ken uh, in his work there. Deborah, do you have some uh, additional education for us today? One little last thing. Question. When a judge denies a motion to accuse himself or herself from presiding in a case, you can appeal with what? A petition for writ of mandamus, a petition for writ of habeas corpus, a petition for writ of certiorari, or a petition for writ of prohibition. What do you think it is? And the answer is a petition for writ of prohibition prohibits the judge from continuing in the case if there is uh, a um, basically a by a feeling of bias, a supportable feeling of bias from a um, one of the parties in it in the case. Uh, anyway, that's pretty much it. You want? Should I explain the others? 
a writ of mandamus basically tells the court, tells the judge to do his job or an, an agency to do their job if they're um, not based uh, following the law. A writ of habeas corpus is if the uh, government is holding someone and that, that someone feels that that is illegal and uh, they can uh, move, uh, file a writ of uh, habeas corpus. And a writ of certiorari is basically a uh, an appeal in the middle, middle of a case when someone feels that a judge had just made a decision, an erroneous decision that will affect the rest of the case going forward and will harm that party. And that is it. Fantastic. Thank you for that uh, explanation, Deborah. That's all we have for you today. Uh, thanks as always for joining us and we will see you again soon. Are you feeling beleaguered, angry, or afraid as if things are spinning out of control and you're powerless to stop them? It's easy to just let things slide and hope they don't get worse. But they often do get worse. The thing is, you're not powerless. Our courts belong to us. And their purpose is to give power to the powerless. Don't let your grievances pile up without redressing them. You can handle this in court. Or if someone takes you to court, you can take them to school.